Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of On Point. It's my delight today to have Garnet Jenis on. He is an MP from the great country of Canada. Uh, he's an MP for the writing of, see, I've used the term writing right there. I'm translating into Canadian, the writing of uh, Sherwood Park in Alberta in Canada. Uh, he was the youngest uh, MP in the Conservative Party. He hasn't aged all that much. He's still young, but an incredibly strong voice, uh, particularly in areas of human rights. So, Garnet, lovely to have you on. Thank you very much. It's it's great to be with you. I, I have yet to visit New Zealand at any point in my life. I hope to have the opportunity to join you in person at some point. But uh, in the midst of these circumstances, it's great to be able to uh, connect with you and your listeners and viewers virtually. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to actually coming to Alberta at some point. I've, I've managed to get to, to Canada, to Toronto, uh, parts of uh, Quebec and uh, certainly Ottawa, but I've got to get across to Alberta and uh, there'll always be a, a cup of coffee or whatever is required down here for when you and your family visit. Wonderful. Hey, um, amongst many other claims to fame, you are a, a very strong advocate uh, for human rights. You, uh, like myself, are one of the co-chairs of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. So I wanted to, to hear your thoughts, particularly on what you see happening with China at the moment. And yeah, just to share some of your thoughts uh, there, that would be welcome. Yeah, maybe so. So, just a, a bit, a quick bit of background on on me. Um, my my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor, and uh, a big part of uh, what has shaped my engagement with politics growing up uh, were uh, was hearing her stories, hearing about her experience, the experience of members of her family, um, and also hearing about the stories of people who spoke out against the Nazis and um, and how that created some space for her, her survival. She was, she was in a, the Munster area of Germany. Uh, Clemens von Galen was, uh, the Catholic archbishop of the area, a well-known vocal critic of the Nazis. Um, and, uh, and my grandmother attributed her survival to, to the fact that because of his, his vocal, uh, bold, uh, criticisms of, of the Nazis, there were people in the area that were willing to shelter her, uh, someone who was considered un undesirable by the regime. And that's what allowed her to survive. So, um, everybody has a bit of a different background in terms of their family and politics. Um, you know, for us, it was kind of a given, uh, whether or not you found politics interesting, uh, that. We sort of understood and, and, and appreciated uh, that, uh, that that who was in power really, really mattered. Uh, and, uh, and and in the case of our family, obviously, it had uh, consequential impacts on on the life and trajectory of our family, as did the willingness of people to speak out against against evil when it was occurring. So um, I, I got elected in, in 2015. And in the short time I've been elected, uh, we've dealt with multiple instances of um, of of uh, of genocide. Uh, of of failure to deliver on those commitments uh, that we made to my grandmother's generation of of never again. Um, so I was involved in debates around recognizing the the genocide of of Yazidis and and Christians uh, in Iraq and Syria at the hands of of Daesh, um, calling for recognition of the Rohingya genocide in Burma, uh, and uh, and more recently I've been, I've been very active on on calling on uh, our our parliament, our government, and and parliaments and governments around the world uh, to recognize the Uyghur genocide. Uh, um, for me, as I look at the situation uh, in China, which was which was kind of where your question started, um, the the uh, the questions of fundamental human rights uh, for Uyghurs and other minorities, but also for uh, for all of the people living in the People's Republic of China, uh, is is top of mind. And you know, recognizing the the universal 
uh, immutable dignity of, of all human beings everywhere, um, the, the right of peoples to, to shape their government, uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and seeing the, the, uh, the face of my grandmother reflected in the images of some of those who have, who are facing, uh, human rights abuses, um, uh, you know, it, it, it really uh, provokes me to say we we need to act uh, individually uh, uh, as countries and, and globally. And I was very proud that Canada was the first country where our parliament recognized the Uyghur genocide. Um, we did so sadly without the support of the government. Uh, the government of Canada has still not taken a position on the Uyghur genocide, but our parliament has acted and other parliaments uh, have followed uh, even in cases where governments were unwilling to act, parliaments have acted. Um, so seeing seeing parliamentary engagement uh, has been uh, has been really important and valuable. Uh, parliamentarians putting pressures on their governments, bringing these issues forward, and and acting together to to advance human rights. I, which is why, again, I thought it was really great to get you on this podcast because you've been a real leader in this space. And if I might, to acknowledge, obviously, your grandmother and that part of your your story. I mean, that's a remarkable journey for her, but what a legacy too, to pass on that human rights framework uh, to you, which begins to explain, I think, the passion which you've, you've shown. I mean, we, um, we were, I think, sadly, New Zealand a bit passive around the ACD side. There was a bit more language uh, and pushback around the Rohingyas. Um, but I think we've also followed, I want to stress that, followed what you and the Canadian Parliament did, not as robustly in New Zealand around the Uyghurs. We talked about um, uh, grave human rights abuses. We couldn't get agreement to get to the word genocide. Um, but I was very conscious of the work that you and other Canadian parliamentarians had done to, to get that put forward. I mean, was that a difficult motion to get through? Or were most of your colleagues like, yeah, we, we understand what's going on here? Well, I, I think the the initial step was a series of hearings. We had uh, parliamentary committee hearings at the International Human Rights Committee, uh, and this was um, this was in the summer of twenty. I get my years mixed up here. Summer summer of twenty twenty, uh, and you know this was unfolding. Uh, we were able to uh, in, in a rare moment because our parliament tends to be quite partisan, um, but we were able to reach across party lines and organize to get this this uh, two day intensive. A study to happen at the Human Rights Subcommittee, uh, and it was it was the sort of moment where you know we came in as members of parties, uh, and we were all just kind of brought together. Um, most of us at points moved to tears hearing um, expert expert witnesses, but also survivor testimony uh, about um, about uh, you know s systemic uh, sexual violence, uh, systemic um, forced abortion. Um, uh, uh, forced insertion of IUDs, um, the 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 putting of people in concentration camps. Um, it, it brought me back to um, to a trip I took with my sister to Berlin and uh, seeing some of the the sites of deportations and seeing uh, how there were apartment buildings um, close by to those sites of deportations and thinking you know there were people who saw this happening right who were in these apartment buildings and who saw who saw these deportations what were they thinking well. Um, well, today we have satellite images. We're not physically in apartment buildings, but but we have the same vantage point through satellite imagery to see some of the things that are happening, uh, and to hear through that uh, that survivor testimony and other evidence we heard. So so that the first step uh, was the um, 
was that committee hearing and the committee coming forward uh, with a recommendation to recognize this as genocide. That committee recommendation uh, created some momentum. Uh, we continue to speak about that. We tabled petitions on it. Uh, the, the Muslim community in Canada was was very active as part of it, but many other communities as well, uh, um, other other faith communities uh, got involved collecting petitions and and concerned citizens of all of all uh, of all backgrounds. And um, the the recognition by uh, American presidential administrations helped move the ball forward as well. Uh, the the Trump administration just at the tail end, uh, but then the Biden administration as well, and having two American administrations in close succession from different parties uh, helped with that that momentum. Um, and then uh, and then our party, uh, the official opposition, took that position, uh, and we put forward a motion. And once we were into the debate, once we crossed that threshold, taken that step, um, that you know the the momentum was really there, and it was clear it was going to pass. We had you know we're the conservative party, the the, the large largest opposition party. Uh, we had the support of the um, of the separatists, Quebec separatist party, the Bloc Québécois, and of the um, and of the the sort of democratic socialist uh, party. We have the NDP, uh, the current government, the the Liberals, uh, not not liberal in the. Um, in the Australian sense, more, more, more sort of liberal in the kind of center left sense, um, kind of in between us and the NDP. They, uh, they are the government. They, uh, but they have a minority. So they were, um, you know, they were kind of spending the day of debate, not really taking a position on this ultimately because they, 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 they felt the political pressure from both sides. We were able to expose what was going on, expose the evidence, um, and in the end. Uh, you know, sadly, the, the cabinet took the kind of cowardly way out of just deciding to en masse abstain from the vote. This is something that 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 had never seen before. Uh, so many, many uh, government members, Liberal Party members came and voted in favor of the motion. Um, but the cabinet and some other members of the government abstained from the motion. So the effect was kind of ironically a unanimous motion of the Canadian parliament uh, recognizing this genocide, and yet the government not taking a position, still not taking a position uh, on uh, on that particular issue. So, um, I mean, I don't want to get uh, too partisan um, when I'm when I'm talking to an international audience here, but um, but it 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 shows uh, what I what I think is sometimes characteristic of the of the political approach of our liberal party, which is which is just trying to trying to bob and weave and and be halfway in between and and uh, quell public uh, pressure on both sides rather than rather than taking a, a clear principled position in response to the evidence. So so that was the political dynamics. And at least we were able to get it passed and get a lot of support. And I credit individual members of the government who stood with us on that. Yeah. And this is, next comment is not a reflection on uh, Canadian parliamentarians because it reflects back in New Zealand as well. But I've, I've never understood how people can abstain on an ethical or moral issue. It, it's, it just makes no sense. You, you're either going to be one side or the other on a debate. Abstention's a very odd, to me, dynamic. Uh, in New Zealand, we look towards a genocide uh, statement or a motion in Parliament, but in discussions with the government, the desire was that all of Parliament would support something, which it eventually did, but the uh, language was dialed back. And I suppose in the New Zealand context, it's the fear, for want of a better word, of repercussions from China which slows down what we say. And I personally, um, that's a concern to me. That's a, an element of this coercive diplomacy that we see from the CCP, trying to put pressure through trade, through the threat of sanctions and other activities, 
to stop people and countries speaking up for human rights? I mean, is that a, a consideration or a particular concern in Canada as well? I, I mean, it was interesting during the debate around around the genocide recognition motion um, because that that sort of line wasn't invoked directly uh, as a reason not to do this. I think if, if politicians came out and openly said, well, we're not going to do this because we're afraid, um, you know, that, that would not be well received by the public. And public opinion polls show, uh, and I think it's true in many countries as well, that the public is actually ahead of, of many elites uh, on, uh, on, on, on these issues, on prioritizing human rights and on wanting to stand up for uh, democratic values and, and questions of fundamental justice. What, what we heard, though, uh, to kind of muddy the waters was, was a lot of, uh, it's complicated, right? A lot of, well, it's, it's, you know, it's very complicated. There are a lot of, a lot of things, uh, going on. And, um, you know, I just, I, I remember, you know, this is, this is maybe a, 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 a light example, but I remember in university when, when people were in, uh, dating relationships, they shouldn't be, uh, they would say, well, it's complicated. And I would say to them, usually it's complicated is an excuse for trying to avoid doing the right thing. Um, and I think it's true in politics as well. When people are saying, oh, it's, it's really, look, of course it's complicated, right? Lots of things are complicated, right? Um, geopolitical relationships are, are very, very complicated. But there are still moments in that complexity that call for moral clarity, right? There is, there is an international legal definition of genocide. Uh, our countries are a party to that convention. Uh, we have obligations to respond not only when we are certain a genocide is taking place, but when there is there is evidence indicating that a genocide is taking place, then we have an obligation to respond. Our obligations under uh, the genocide convention to which we are a party are are triggered. And uh, you know, sometimes politicians, you know, they they want to hide behind the complexity, um, and they want to hide behind well, it's it should be an international process. Someone else should should decide. Well, uh, member states have obligations under the genocide convention. If you're a party of the genocide convention, you have an obligation to recognize genocide when it's happening and to take all the steps you can. Uh, and, and, and in the case of the, the, the Uyghur genocide, I mean, there's many steps we need to take. Uh, we need to, to uh, apply targeted sanctions against those involved in the genocide. Uh, we also need to reform supply chain uh, regulations so that we're not importing products made through, through slave labor. Um, you know, this these aren't these aren't uh, violent actions that anybody is calling for, um, but but a simple commitment to saying uh, we are not going to cooperate in this evil by purchasing products that are made uh, by slave labor, uh, and we shouldn't be allowing our our pension funds to invest in companies that are developing technology that is facilitating this genocide. And one of the things that we've spoken out about, been, been very critical of the uh, Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board for some of the investments they've, they've uh, made in China, including in companies like Dua and Hikvision uh, that, are, that are involved in developing technology uh, that is contributing to, uh, to serious repression, including repression in, uh, in Xinjiang. So, um, so a lot of work that needs to be done here, and, uh, and we have clear moral obligations uh, that we can live up to. Sure, there's always complexity involved, but we can't use it's complicated as an excuse to hide from our moral obligations. We certainly get the it's complicated um, argument here. I think if there's a difference between the Canadian and New Zealand experience, there's a, a lot more trade focus here, a lot more. So about 30% of New Zealand's trade is with China. Uh, and there's real concern that if there's any, and I get it, occasionally from people to say, stop talking about these things because it could affect my bottom line in business. 
And you go, well, yeah, but there's some moral considerations here, like seriously big ones. So we, we often get that trade fear side, which I don't really think is a particularly good way to, to do your foreign policy. Um, yeah. Yeah, can I just comment on that on on that quickly on the on the on the trade front? So so two points that I think are important. Uh, number one, I think sometimes we don't give people enough credit. Uh, most people are not fundamentally motivated by materialist concerns. Um, I, I have a friend of mine who's a who's a parliamentary colleague uh, who who uh, lives in a rural area. His neighbor's a, a farmer. Um, impacted very much by the Chinese market. And my friend spent some time with him, just sharing with him a little bit about organ harvesting in this. And um, and his neighbor said to him, you know what, you guys do whatever you need to do on China. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this. And I think that like that means so much more coming from from someone like him who's who's actually economically affected. I think we, as nations as well, we need to be prepared to share these these burdens. Um, but let's let's give people credit for 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 uh, I think most everyday citizens are very principled and more principled than many politicians. But the other thing I just on the on the trade issue is that um, actually what we the Canadian experience has been uh, we, we under Stephen Harper, our previous prime minister, uh, we took some very strong positions on human rights issues, um, as, in particular in the early years uh, of of his government. And you can look at at the trade data at the time, and there were significant increases actually. In uh, in bilateral trade that coincided with some of that strong language on on human rights. What's the the point? The point is China doesn't trade with New Zealand or Australia or the U.S. or Canada um, as an act of charity. China engages in in trade because it's in its economic interest to trade. And and uh, the legitimacy of of the government of China depends on its ability to deliver economic growth. Um, so so as much as it might want to make threats. Um, the, the the leaders in China are not going to cut off their hand despite their face. They need trade. Um, we benefit from trade, um, but they need trade in a in a, in a in a different kind of way because of of how it it impacts their um, their their claim to legitimacy. So I, I I don't think we should be too fearful at the end of the day, given that reality. No, and I I tend to agree. I mean, I will often uh, push back to note. Well, seventy percent of our trade is elsewhere. Uh, secondly. Um, if you are worried about your trading partner beating you up uh, because you make moral statements, that's not free trade. Um, and the other side is actually exactly what you uh, said is China trades with us for a reason. And I'd say arguably for New Zealand products, it's to keep the middle class happy. They want our wines and cheeses and other things. So we're not completely powerless. We're not as powerful, but we're not uh, powerless. I wouldn't mind asking, because you touched on two areas of real interest to me. One, we talk about the modern slavery, um, making sure we know where products are coming from. New Zealand uh, doesn't have any laws in that space. I've got one about to go in the ballot to say, hey, we need to know uh, where products are coming from. And one can think of cotton, for example, coming out of the Xinjiang. The other is around Magnitsky legislation. Again, New Zealand doesn't have any of that. We can only apply UN sanctions. Um, does Canada have those pieces of legislation in any way, shape, or form? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, on on, on, Magnit on the Magnitsky Act, um, there, there's better news there. Uh, we do have a, a Magnitsky Act. The government has an ability to apply targeted sanctions against individuals involved in human rights violations. Uh, that was a private member's bill uh, advanced by, uh, by conservative members in the Senate and the House in the uh, not the last parliament, but the one before it. Um, the government was initially reluctant on that, but the political dynamic was such that eventually the legislation received all party support. Um, 
the challenge we have now is that the, you know the, the legislation is only as good as its use, and the legislation provides the Minister of Foreign Affairs a tool to, to use, uh, but the government has been very limited in its use of the, the Magnitsky Act. So, um, one of the uh, uh, the measures we had in our in our uh, last election platform in the election that just concluded uh, was creating a kind of um, of popular and parliamentary trigger mechanism for the Magnitsky Act, so that uh, members of the public and parliamentarians could petition to have names added uh, to the Magnitsky Act. And uh, th those petitions wouldn't oblige the minister to sanction someone, but they would oblige the minister to provide a response explaining their reasons for or against sanctions. So, so trying to push the envelope forward, create more mechanisms for pushing the government to actually use the tool. Uh, so I would I would encourage New Zealand to, to adopt the uh, Magnitsky Act, but also um, to to take advantage of the opportunity right from the beginning to build in some sort of a parliamentary uh, trigger mechanism. Ultimately, the government has to has to make the decision about who to sanction. That's that's what we like governments to do. Uh, but in order to address the the risk of governments being too reluctant to use the tool, you create some mechanism by which parliamentarians can petition the government, and the government has to provide a provide a response to those petitions. Uh, on on the issue of um, of, of modern day slavery, uh, Canada Canada is I think significantly behind our our partners. I, I, I'm not sure uh, exactly how we compare to to New Zealand's legislation. Um, the government announced uh, some new measures related to uh, products uh, coming out of uh, coming uh, coming out of uh, East Turkestan or, or Xinjiang. Um, as far as we know, those new measures haven't led to the stopping of a single shipment. Um, you know, the, the measures put in place can't just be symbolic. They have to be meaningful, right? So um, so if you have measures that are based on, well, if somebody's a victim of slavery, they can make a complaint to the border services agency and then it'll be adjudicated and they'll look at the evidence. I mean, that's like you have to take into consideration the realities. Um, and I think I think we can see more we can see more cooperation among like minded countries on this. Uh, there's there's a lot of. Uh, you know, of of uh, investigation that may be required. So, if we can uh, save some resources on the investigation side by by seeing greater cooperation among you know Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., and other other partners, I think that would be um, that would be really worthwhile. Uh, we we spoke in uh, in Canada about uh, the the model of the the bipartisan Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in the United States, uh, which um, which creates a presumption that products coming out of certain certain places uh, involve slave labor. Um, and I think that's a model that we need to, to seriously look at, um, you know, be, because like, we know what's going on. Um, we're, we're not able to, to send individual investigators, you know, to, to, to check things out in every individual case. So there has to be a mechanism recognizing the overall reality that yep. certain products coming out of Xinjiang, there's potentially a problem. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important for even listeners to understand that we might not be able to go in into those Uyghur regions, but actually the evidence is is absolutely overwhelming. And yes. the other part you touched on too, we're having a little bit of the same issues here with our super fund in terms of its investment uh, practices. Um, they're very quick to take an ethical approach to, to certain uh, topics. So in New Zealand, they recently de-invested without consultation from Israeli banks, and that's their decision. But uh, they are investing still in uh, Chinese companies, particularly in the tech sector, um, who are part of uh, the concentration camp systems. And you're going, why is there discussion or ignorance of this? It's right before you. Why don't you just pull out and divest? So we've got a lot of debate in that space um, as well. Yeah, and and uh, I've had some 
you know, I, I won a particular meeting with with folks from our from our pension fund, and I was was very forthright about these these issues. And um, I mean, their their argument is that that they're operating under legislation that that uh, that that says they they need to be thinking about maximizing profit, and and that's kind of it. Um, and and there's some there's some risks in in you know, opening the door too wide for pension funds to consider investments on the basis of political criteria, uh, because then you get you get all kinds of different um, influences coming in, and and it becomes, um, you know, it, 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 I think the risks and downsides of that are are obvious. But I think there needs to be there needs to be some mechanism for excluding uh, extreme instances of of. Um, of violence, and it's it's very interesting to me that you would you would say, and I wasn't aware of it that that your your own pension board um, made a decision um, about divesting from Israel, but not from China. I mean that mm-hmm. um, that uh, it's hard to imagine that flying in 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 Canada there would there would be there would be significant criticism of of a of a double standard like that uh, were it, were it applied to to Canada, but. Um, you know, it, yeah, well, it, it's it's been a massive double standard here yeah. because we we get this we've had the super fund in front of the foreign affairs committee and bringing them back again because it's a consistency question for us to go okay well you've said you're going to divest from these Israeli banks you didn't discuss with them you've just made a decision yet here's evidence of what's happening it doesn't matter if it's the Uyghurs uh, Tibet uh, the massive uh, you know, issues around Hong Kong of course all of this but. You're willing, willing, sorry, just to have discussions about this. It's like, well, hold on. There's, there's no parity here. Where's yeah. a little bit of consistency? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, and, and good, good for you for for pushing those points. Yeah. Oh, we certainly will. But it's really interesting, and hence these conversations with yourself to understand what our other countries are doing, which is a very uh, cheeky segue into the whole question of AUKUS, because you've talked a yes. few times of how we uh, cooperate. And we look towards our allies. So obviously, Canada and New Zealand, we're part of Five Eyes. But in recent weeks, uh, we've had the development of, of AUKUS. And um, if I might, it'd be fascinating to get your perspective on that. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there there is always a need for strengthening cooperation among uh, like-minded democracies, uh, working with the Five Eyes and also looking to engage, uh, engage other partners. Um, uh, maybe I'll just share that uh, the AUKUS announcement was kind of interesting in terms of how it uh, how it informed the conversation here in Canada. Um, it, you know, we I think, I think every every democratic um, you know Western nation is is thinking thinks seriously about their relationship with the United States, uh, but it's particularly pronounced for Canada given the uh, how close we are, the long land border. Um, you know, the fact that uh, that that you know fundamental to our to us is is North American security, and we we cooperate closely through NORAD on on North American security. Um, so, for for the security partnership to be announced between the UK, Australia, and um, and um, UK, Australia, and the US um, that Canada was not a part of, and uh, then to see some of the comments president biden made about you know america has no closer friend or ally than australia it was interesting the response in canada because um that this was i think for some people like you know myself included a bit a bit of like a red flag saying like well what's what's happening in terms of our engagement and 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 we're not blaming our international partners it was more a question uh coming from us to the government saying um 
you know, what conversations happened, what what uh, opportunities were there to for cooperation with for Canada to be a part of this, and I'd imagine maybe maybe similar questions are being asked in uh, in, in in New Zealand. Um, you know, I, I understand a big part of of uh, AUKUS was is working on uh, kind of uh, maritime security. Uh, we have issues in maritime security in the in the Arctic, and um, there, you know, there's big concerns about uh, you know longstanding concerns about Russia, but increasing concerns about China being active in in the Arctic as well. Um, so, so uh, from from an opposition perspective in Canada, you know, we we're 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 enthusiastic about seeing security cooperation among like-minded democracies, um, but we're also asking our government questions about, um, you know, what what uh, you know what, what what's happening here in terms of our engagement. Are we are we stepping up to the plate and working with our allies as much as we as we could be and should be? Uh, I, I think I think uh, Canada has a lot to offer the world. Um, and uh, and and uh, certainly we want to. For, for the perspective we're pushing forward in Parliament is wanting to see uh, Canada be be more engaged in a principled way, standing up for uh, for human rights and democratic values, and and engaged collaboratively with our allies around security issues as well. It's funny, actually, your perspective is ultimately very similar to the one here in New Zealand, which is, um, if I was to phrase it, we see AUKUS as a good thing, um, and good on America, the UK, and Australia cooperating. But there was uh, significant disappointment uh, that New Zealand wasn't part of that. But the questions have been to the New Zealand government, not to our allies. In fact, turns out in the New Zealand case, Garnet, that we um, weren't even part of the discussions. We were only told a few hours uh, beforehand. So our government was blindsided, um, but it raises significant questions, to me at least, of why was New Zealand not fit to be part of this? Why were we not even part of the conversation? And down here, the, the focus has become obsessed with nuclear submarines. Uh, New Zealand's proudly nuclear-free. Uh, we don't need a submarine, nuclear or otherwise. But it's all the other um, defence and intelligence cooperation, particularly in cybersecurity, where we're having major problems down here uh, that we're missing out on. It's incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the, the last thing either of our countries would, would want to see would be a, a kind of... Um, incremental move from five eyes to three eyes right i mean i don't and I, I don't think that serves the that serves the other uh our, our other partners in any way either i mean i think canada and new zealand certainly bring a lot to the table and we're seeing security cooperation through through other vehicles through through the quad uh, quad uh, important as well and i uh, and and we've been calling for canadian engagement uh with uh with the quad as well um so you know, I, again, I, I think our, our country has a lot to offer. Some of our our foreign policy debates uh, can can kind of be on this axis of you know some 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 people take the position that we should be kind of a um, you know quasi non-aligned kind of uh, having having uh, similar kinds of relationships with everybody, and then and then the other side of it, and I'm kind of on this other side, is saying um, you know Canada needs to. Um, you know, sure, seek 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 warm, constructive relations with as many countries as possible, but clearly be on uh, on the right side of history, on the side of, of freedom, uh, democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. Um, that means uh, particularly cultivating relationships with um, with historic allies and new allies uh, who who are who share those values and are prepared to work with us, uh, and and uh, allying ourselves with freedom seeking peoples. That is seeking to expand the, the space for freedom and, and democratic values around the world. Um, we, we shouldn't be uh, be in the world to go along and get along. We should be in the world to stand up for what is right. 
And I won't surprise you, I have a very similar mindset. You do try to cooperate with everyone. You've mentioned Russia and China. I mean, that's important for little old New Zealand as well to try and maintain good relationships, but not at the expense of some of our most fundamental values, which is uh, the place of freedom, of li- you know proper liberalism um, yeah. and good values around democracy and, and human rights. Um, but by the way, speaking of Canada and, and military stuff, you guys have uh, recently refitted out our uh, warships or our little frigates. So we're very, there's great cooperation there, and thanks to Canadians yeah. uh, uh, for that. Hey, one last, if I might, uh, cheeky question, because, of course, you've just gone through an election, and congratulations on your uh, re-election. But, um, Thank you. I don't know if you would like to share any, any thoughts of uh, yeah, where the election has ended up and what happened with our particularly New Zealand listeners. Yeah, well, um, look, I mean, a big part of this election uh, was the situation, the ongoing situation with with COVID, and uh, I know the dynamics are um, are quite different in New Zealand around uh, around that, and and every country has a, a different different experience. I mean, I think, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, for for us, there was a lot of criticism of the government for calling an election uh, in the middle of, uh, of for us a, a fourth wave of the pandemic. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, the government was trying to criticize the opposition for various uh, approaches around COVID, but it was in the midst of them having convened an election in the middle of of, uh, of a pandemic, and that uh, created potential concerns around uh, around uh, you know the the out and about that was just sort of required as part of the the democratic process. And uh, it, it, it it's been less than two years since the last election and um you know look although i wasn't a supporter of the government they were they were certainly able to govern and they had the they were in a minority but they had the support of other parties so so that that kind of dominated some of the the initial phase of the campaign um you know there were afghanistan uh was an issue um you know the our government i think being being slow in response to that kind of concerns about the long-term situation of the economy um before the election was called, my party, the Conservative Party, was uh, was way behind in the polls. The Liberals were way ahead. Um, most people expected the Liberals to to significantly strengthen their position and gain a, a majority. Um, it, it, what what actually happened is that we we spent six hundred million dollars on an election. There was criticism about why it was called, uh, and um, and in the end, we we finished with more or less exactly the same result. I think there was, you know, a couple of the parties shifted their results by one or two seats, which is, it's, it's quite unprecedented that you would have, you know, so much has changed since prior to the pandemic. And yet um, almost nothing changed in terms of, of the makeup of, uh, of parliament. So, um, so I, I think, you know, for, in, in a lot of ways, it, it's, it's sort of a, an invitation from Canadians to just get, get back to work, get on with the work of, uh, of uh, of governing and um, uh, looking forward to to being able to to do that. We had a special committee on Canada-China relations in the last Parliament that uh, was effectively dissolved when Parliament was dissolved. So uh, we'll see if that uh, if that comes back. I'm hopeful that it will come back so that we can continue some of that work in in particular. And I think the message from Canadians was um, was was that they were not happy actually with with the liberals for calling that early election and they lost a lot of support as a result uh and in the end um in the end we're kind of uh back where we started yeah well it's fascinating to watch i thought it was a big gamble by trudeau uh to call the election when he did and i mean 
this whole conversation, I've been particularly struck by what I would say is the commonalities between our, our countries and, and perspectives, including of how, in both our cases, we have left-wing governments. But Canadians seem to have that shared New Zealand value of a bit of a fair go and the idea of, yeah, trying to call an election to capitalise on a, a crisis doesn't go down, well, it appeared in Canada not to go down well, in the same way it wouldn't go well here if our government our government yeah. tried. Although in the New Zealand case, Garnet, the government has an outright majority, which probably changes the dynamic slightly. Um, yeah. But yeah. One, what, just just one, uh, one interesting difference in our systems is that uh, you have adopted, of course, a proportional, uh, proportional system, whereas in Canada, we have the first-past-the-post system. And um, uh, notably, this is the second election in a row where the Liberals have uh, formed a government, won the most seats, uh, but they have not gotten the largest support among in the popular vote. Uh, Conservatives won the popular vote in each of the last two elections. Uh, And uh, the the Liberal government we have now, they actually dropped their support from the previous election in terms of popular vote. They less less than a third of Canadians voted for them. Uh, Just just north of just north of 30 percent of people uh, voted for for the Liberals, almost 70 percent voted against them. uh, And yet they're they're still forming a government. So um, it, it 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 may be that more Canadians are, are take interest in in studying New Zealand's experience with uh, with a proportional system. After this, we'll see how those uh, debates evolve. Yeah, actually, well, that's something I hadn't uh, picked up on about the Canadian uh, dynamic. That's fascinating. Well, we have the paradox here that we bought in a, a proportional system to effectively stop um, one party or be that the left or the right dominating, and yet in this past election. Uh, almost unheard of in a proportional system. Yeah, a, a single party has 51% of the vote. So it, we, strange dynamics at, afoot here. But Garnet, look, thank you so much for your time. We've actually traversed quite a, a range of topics, but can I say a yeah. big thank you for the leadership uh, you provide? I said you may be there in Canada, uh, but your work is, is known to me and many others, including um, how you provide leadership uh, with us on IPAC. And just thank you for continuing to speak up for for human rights um, and obviously the representation you bring from that centre-right conservative uh, mindset. It's really appreciated. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to connect and uh, um, I look forward to continuing to work with uh, with our partners in, in New Zealand and, and around the world. Um, we, we have an opportunity now, I think, with the uh, increasing use of this digital technology to build um, more collaboration among legislators in uh, in like-minded democratic countries, and uh, we're seeing the the flowering of those relationships. And uh, I look forward to continuing to work with you, and and uh, and and hopefully we can learn from each other as as we kind of uh, you know compare each other's experiences. So uh, so thanks for this opportunity, and thank you. I look forward to chatting again.